Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 9, 2 Kings chapters 6 and 7. We ended our last lesson on a decidedly down note as we read in 2 Kings 6 of a siege by Syria upon this northern Israelite capital city of Samaria. And because of the nature of siege warfare, whose goal it is to surround a walled city and essentially wait for the trapped residents to run out of food and out of supplies, we of course read of a terrible famine inside those city walls whereby the people were reduced to eating unclean animals like donkeys and using food stretchers such as carob husks that have no more nutritional value than sand. That, and these, these, these carob husks carry the colloquial name of dove's dung. You can imagine how wonderful that was. But what shocks our senses even more is to read about Hebrew mothers killing, cooking, and eating their own children as a means of personal survival. Now I want to stress this is not some fanciful horror story designed to elicit strong emotions and disgust. It happened more than once or twice. And it was even foretold in a number of places in the Hebrew Bible that if Israel became too rebellious, such a terrible thing would be the result. Of course, this scene is happening in the idolatrous and apostate northern kingdom. And part of the reason that we're given such gory details is to inform us that Israel has indeed reached a point, such a point of abomination in God's eyes, that drastic action was called for. Now remember, in just a few more chapters, we're going to find the northern kingdom conquered and then emptied of its people as they hit the bottom of the slippery slope they had been descending since Jeroboam had those two golden calves built and declared to his people, These are your gods, O Israel! who led you out of Egypt. Now, do not think that I'm suggesting that God caused this siege. But rather, it is clear that He had lifted His hand of blessing and protection from this unfaithful people. The siege is not supernatural in character. Rather, from an earthly viewpoint, it is but the typical result of one national monarch seeking to extend his dominion and reach into a rival nation for the purpose of power and glory and wealth. And this kind of ambition always involves death and destruction. Now let me comment that while one is not directly related to the other, this siege of Samaria provides a good illustration of the nature of the coming worldwide tsunami of catastrophe that evangelical Christians call the Great Tribulation. 
I've taught on this subject before, but maybe this would be a good time to briefly summarize. The tribulation period of the Christians is known to the Jews as the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, note that Jacob and Israel are the same person. And the terms are always interchangeable in the Bible. So from a Hebrew roots teaching standpoint, I have no pause in calling this awful time of the very near future the time of Israel's trouble. And in fact, I think it helps to put it in that context so that maybe we can better grasp what it is that's being signaled to us so that we can recognize it when it happens. The English word tribulation is translated from the Greek word phlipsis, which means pressure or oppression. Just as the Jewish name for it, the time of Israel's trouble characterizes it, it is a time of prolonged and profound pressure and oppression upon Israel. But as in the siege of Samaria, the trouble is decidedly not supernatural, although the solution to it will be. The tribulation period often gets mixed up with the period of God's wrath that follows it. And perhaps that is because Scripture seems to indicate that for a short duration of the final few days, maybe even several weeks of the tribulation period, the time of God's wrath overlaps with it. The period of God's heaven-sent wrath is defined by 21 specific acts of divine supernatural judgment or wrath as written in the book of Revelation. These have been labeled by the church as, as the seal, bowl, and trumpet judgments. Three named sets of judgments, each consisting of seven supernaturally ordained events of devastation, that totals 21. But these are not to be confused with the tribulation. Just like in the siege of Samaria, the events of the tribulation are humanly caused. The coming tribulation is a time when secular humanism finally bears all of its inevitable ugly fruit and godless tyrants are now vying for power the world over. This is a time when the evil of men upon other men runs rampant and it's unparalleled in human history as it will affect the entire world without exception. It is a time when the world has become so pagan, so bold and full of hatred that the remnant of believers becomes a target. And it happens because the world over, the Lord has retracted His hand of blessing and protection and everyone will more or less equally share in its effects. Let me say it again. 
the effects of the tribulation will not be from God's supernatural wrath being poured out. That will happen uh, seven years-ish from the first days of the tribulation. But rather its source is human wickedness gone wild, just as it was, as Christ says, in the days of Noah. Now, does Satan have his fingerprints all over the tribulation? Of course. Does God influence matters? Of course. But God's wrath is different from the tribulation of men's evil. Let's reread a small section of 2 Kings 6 about the siege of Samaria. 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to start reading at verse 24. That'll be on page 407 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. But sometime afterwards, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all of his army, went up and laid siege to Shamron, Samaria. And at the time, there was a severe famine in Shomron, and they maintained their siege until a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and half a pint of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. And as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, Help, my lord king! And he said, If Adonai isn't helping you, how do you expect me to help you? There isn't any grain. There isn't any wine. And then the king asked her, What's troubling you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son so that we can eat him today. We'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and we ate him. And the next day I said to her, Give your son so that we can eat him. But she's hidden her son. And when the king heard what the woman said, he tore his clothes. At the time, he was passing by on the wall. And when the people looked, they saw him there with sackcloth against his skin. And then he said, May God do terrible things to me and worse ones too if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his body by day's end. Elisha was sitting in his house and the leaders were sitting there with him. The king sent a messenger ahead, but before he arrived, Elisha said to the leaders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to remove my head? Look, when the messenger comes, close the door and keep it shut against him. You can hear his master's footsteps following right behind him. And while he was still speaking, the messenger arrived with this message from the king. Here, this evil is from Adonai. Why should I wait for Adonai any longer? King Yeoram was walking atop the thick defensive walls of Samaria. He was looking down upon the enemy on the outside, upon the dying and the dead of his own people on the inside when a distraught woman hollered out to him for justice. She had made a devil's bargain with another mother that each would kill one child, cook it, and then share the degrading meal amongst themselves. First one would act, and then later the second would follow suit. And the woman who had called out to the king had already killed, cooked, and eaten her child, but now the other woman backed out of the deal. The king of Israel, as apostate and unfaithful as he was, nonetheless had not entirely lost his humanity, and he fell into an anguish and despair upon hearing this, this woman's tale of woe. But along with his despair came 
an irrational anger, an urge to blame. And never had Jehoram imagined that Hebrew mothers would descend this far to outright cannibalism. But he no doubt knew that this had to be the result of a curse from God. On the one hand, he put on the sackcloth of mourning and repentance as a sign of acknowledging that sin was the cause of his nation's plight. But, on the other hand, he blamed Elisha as God's greatest agent on earth and not his own rebellion against the Lord for all this sorry state of affairs. In fact, he made a vow invoking the Lord's name that if he didn't have Elisha executed that very day, that his royal self ought to become the next meal for some starving family. What was Elisha's crime in the king's eyes? Probably it wasn't for any one thing. It hadn't been too long since Elisha brought those Syrian troops to Samaria that had their perception blinded by God. And as much as Jerom wanted to kill them, Elisha told him he could not. Instead, he was to feed them and release them. And now, no doubt, many of those same troops have returned and they're surrounding his capital city. Yeoram and his father before him hated Elijah and Elisha because they both complained that all either prophet ever brought to them was a harsh word from God and never good tidings. It was believed among the people of this era that prophets not only represented gods, but to some degree they actually controlled the gods. And those prophets worked for the kings to do their bidding. So a prophet, upon his own volition, but usually at the behest of his king, would pronounce something to happen, good thing or a bad thing, and then he would manipulate the god or the gods that he represents to bring it about. Thus a prophet was thought to have at least an equal hand in bringing about trouble or victory for a king. Thus to King Jehoram's deluded mind, Elisha could have at least stopped the famine or shortened it but maybe even prevented it in the first place. After all, Jehoram and Elisha were nearly enemies. I mean, we've read in numerous places about how much the king despised Elisha and how little regard Elisha had for the king. So now the king decided that it was time for Elisha to die, and the king dispatched, dispatched one of his men to assassinate him. Well, Elisha was sitting in his house. He was inside the walls of Samaria, along with all the others who were under siege, while the king's assassin was on his way to do his duty. But the king seems to have forgotten about Elisha's gift of second sight. So Elisha knew of this deadly plot. And as he was sitting with some of the city's elders, he said to them that this son of a murderer, meaning Jehoram, had sent someone to behead him. And aware of this situation, Elisha told the elders not to answer the door, but more or less to barricade it. 
And this is because Elisha also knew that after the king had made the rash vow to kill him, and even after sending the killer on his way, the king would change his mind and not want to further antagonize God by killing his greatest prophet. Verse 33 says that essentially the king ran and caught up to his henchmen and stopped him. And so when the king arrived at Elisha's door, he said to him, Here, this evil is from Adonai. Why should I wait for Adonai any longer? See, what the original Hebrew more literally said was, Behold, this evil is from Jehovah. What hope can I have from Jehovah? See, the gist of the comment is that King Yeram admits that this siege and its terrible effects are the consequence of his and his people's wickedness. So since God has decided this, it's useless to pray. Because God has decided. So the outcome's certain. There's no hope. Let's move on to chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. Elisha answered, Listen to the word of Adonai. Here is what Adonai says. Tomorrow by this time six quarts of flour will sell for only a shekel. Half a bush of barley for a shekel at the market at the gate of Shomron. The servant on whose arm the king was leaning answered the man of God. Why, this couldn't happen even if Adonai made windows in heaven. And Elisha answered, All right, you yourself will see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. Now there were four men with Zerat at the entrance to the city gate, and they said to each other, Why should we sit here till we die? If we say we'll enter the city, then the city has been struck by famine, so we'll die there. And if we sit still here, we'll also die. So let's go and surrender to the army of Aram. If they spare our lives, we'll live. If they kill us, we'll only die. Well, they got up during the twilight to go to the camp of Aram, but when they reached the outskirts of the camp of Aram, they saw no one. For Adonai had caused the army of Aram to hear the sound of chariots and horses. It sounded like a huge army, and they said to each other, The king of Israel must have hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. So they jumped up and fled in the twilight, leaving their tents and horses and donkeys and the whole camp just as it was, and they ran for their lives. And when these men with Zarat reached the outskirts of the camp, they entered one of the tents, they, tents, they ate and they drank, then they took some silver and gold and clothing, they went and they hid it. Next they returned and they entered another tent, they stuff, took stuff from there, and they went and hid it. But finally, they said to each other, what we're doing is wrong. At a time of good news like this, we shouldn't keep it to ourselves. If we wait even until morning, we will only earn punishment. So come on, let's go and tell the king's household. So they came and shouted to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them the news. We went to the camp of Aram. There was no one there, no human voice, just the horses and the donkeys tied up, the tents left in place. The gatekeepers called. They told it to the king's household inside, and then the king got up in the night, and he said to his servants, I'll tell you what Aram has done to us. They know that we're hungry, so they've gone outside the camp and hidden in the countryside, saying, when they come out of the city, we'll take them alive and then get inside the city. 
One of his servants answered, I suggest letting some men take five of the remaining horses that are left in this city. They're like everything else in Israel that remains, like everything else in Israel practically finished, and we'll send and see. So they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent after the army of Aram, saying, Go and see. Well, they went after them all the way to the Jordan and found the entire distance strewn with clothing and other articles Aram had thrown away in their haste. The messengers returned and told the king, and then the people went out and ransacked the camp of Aram with the result that that six quarts of fine flour was sold for only a shekel and half a bushel of barley for a shekel in keeping with what Adonai had said. The king put the servant on whose arm he had leaned in charge of the gate. The people trampled him down in the gateway so that he died, as the man of God had said he would, whom spoke when the king came to him, who spoke when the king came to him. For the man of God only said for the man of God had said to the king, Tomorrow by this time, six quarts of barley will sell for only a shekel and half a bush of fine flour for a shekel in the market at the gate of Shomron. The servant had answered the man of God why this couldn't happen even if Adonai made windows in heaven. And Elisha had said, All right, you yourself will see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. That is exactly what happened to him. Because the people trampled him down in the gateway, so he died. What an unfortunate place that Bible editors from times past chose to end chapter 6 and begin chapter 7. Now recall the chapter and verse markers are somewhat arbitrary and were never there in the original. Usually there's a good reason and logic for their choices, but this one's a real head-scratcher. Because the scene that ends chapter 6 simply continues without interruption into the first verse of chapter 7. Thus, verse 1 of chapter 7 is Elisha's conversational reply to King Yeram's remark that since Jehovah has ordained this calamity, even if he didn't directly cause it, then what hope is there that Jehovah would relent What use is there to even discuss it? And Elisha begins by saying, Listen to the word of Yehovah. The Hebrew is Shema Dabar Yehovah. And the significance of using the word Shema is that it does not mean merely to listen. The more literal English translation is hear and obey. Shema is not passive listening. It is active doing. And the idea is that the king is to participate in what it is that Elisha says the Lord is going to bring about. The king is to expect it to happen. Prepare for it to happen. And then to act accordingly. For instance, he should inform his starving people to give them assurance that help will be there in 24 hours. Hang on. Why didn't he do any of that? After Elisha explained that by the next day, food would be plentiful, 
And thus, back to relatively normal market prices, the king's servant, probably the assassin, scoffed at such a prediction. A prediction. So he mocked Elisha and God. What Elisha proposed was utterly impossible by any human rationale. They were under siege. They're in the most severe famine. Even cannibalism has occurred. And the king's servant exclaims incredulously that even if the windows of heaven were opened and it rained so the fields could grow, or even if flour and meat fell from the skies, there wouldn't be enough. The rabbis say <clears throat> that had the servant merely insulted Elisha, the prophet would have merely ignored him. But by saying that even heaven couldn't provide, he denied God's ability to deliver his people. This is blasphemy. And the penalty for blasphemy is death. So the servant's fate was sealed as Elisha shot back that indeed tomorrow this servant will see abundant food, but he's not going to live to enjoy any of it. We hear not one word from the king of Israel who was present during this dialogue. So we can safely assume that he held essentially the same sentiments as his faithless servant. You know, it's a sad reality that we are always tempted due to our imperfect faith and weak trust to either rationalize or discount God's promises. What we see with our human eyes always seems to take precedence over what we see with our spiritual eyes. And the more grand God's promises the more desperate the situation, the harder time of it that we have to believe and to rely upon the Word of God. However, what separated the greatest Bible heroes from other common but righteous men was that they did believe God, that the impossible was possible after all. But would a government representative of an apostate kingdom believe that he could rely on the Lord when he had shunned and even demeaned the word of God? The Lord in his fathomless mercy had given Jeram, King Jeram, and his servant an opportunity to turn away from unbelief, to turn back to him. But whether from habit or some kind of a developed instinct or a sense maybe of not deserving such unmerited grace from the one who had been systematically dishonored for years and years, the servant made light of these promised miracles. And thus Elisha delivered the bad news that although he would get to witness the folly of his lack of trust, he would not join in the Lord's bounty for his people. I think this scenario happens to everyday believers with alarming regularity. God gives us every sign of what direction ought to be. 
confirms in many ways that we are on the right path. But we either feel that we aren't worthy, or we deny the proofs, we call them coincidences, or we just can't accept that such marvelous grace could be coming our way because it doesn't seem rationally possible. Some of this is because, especially in our day, it has become common that church leaders and Bible scholars no longer believe in divine miracles. So they teach their congregations and their students to believe the same. The result is that while we may be allowed... Now hear me on this, please. The result is that while we may be allowed to see miracles, it's going to be from afar. And it's going to be for those who hold a deeper trust. And we will likely be shut out from the benefits. The story now shifts its focus to four men who suffered from Zerat. In Hebrew, a person who suffers from Zerat is called a Metzorah. A Metzorah. Remember that the reason that a Metzorah had a skin disease in the first place is because the Lord directly gave it to the person because they had an unclean inner spirit and the Lord was exposing their shame for everyone to see. Now the ancient sages say that the four Metzorim were Elisha's former servant, Gaihazi, and his three sons. I have no reason to doubt it. I also have no evidence to substantiate it. Now by Torah law, these four men must be separated from the community of God. Leviticus 13, 45 and 46 says this, Everyone who has Zerat sores is to wear torn clothes and unbound hair, cover his upper lip and cry, Unclean! Unclean! And as long as he has sores, he'll be unclean. Since he's unclean, he must live in isolation. He must live outside the camp. So while there would have been some sort of a building outside of the city gates to house them, they had to come to the city gate to beg for food. Notice that the term in the Torah law is that they must stay outside the camp. Outside the camp was a term used for when they were still wandering in the wilderness and they were living in a tent camp. Now that they are settled in the promised land, the camp came to be seen as any city that had walls. Thus, Metzorim, the people with Surat, had to stay outside the city walls, even though there was no prohibition about where they could be inside of a wallless rural town or village. But as one can probably imagine, if the residents inside these walls were resorting to unthinkable sources for food, the unclean outside the city gates had little of any chance of receiving charity. So the four men made a risky but a pragmatic decision. If they remained sitting at the city gates waiting for food that didn't exist, they were going to starve. 
And if they threw themselves on the mercy of the Arameans, they might die. But on the other hand, they might survive. So they took a chance. And they walked towards the Syrian encampment. Well, they got up before the sun rose to the horizon. And in the dim light of early morning, they arrived at the perimeter of the Syrian tents, expecting to be stopped by a a scout or a sentry. But nothing happened. In fact, there wasn't a soldier in sight. Verses 5 and 6 explain that God caused the Syrian army to imagine that they heard the sounds of horses and chariots of an enormous army coming to rescue the residents of Samaria. They became terrified and they ran for their lives. Now, you know, it would seem that if one had a horse or a chariot, one would take the time to ready it and use it to escape. But you know what? When panic sets in, often the instinct to flee just becomes overpowering. And that's what happened here. The Aramean army left so quickly, they took nothing more than whatever clothing they were wearing at the time. Prepared and unprepared food was left behind. The Aramean soldiers figured that Jehoram had hired the armies of the kings of the Hittites and of the Egyptians to come and rescue Israel. And now they were surrounded and vulnerable. There's no evidence that this had actually occurred. But such a thing was actually quite common. Kings often rented out their armies for a treasure trove of gold and silver because it allowed them to accumulate more wealth at little risk to themselves personally. The welfare of their soldiers was secondary. Let's be clear that verse 6 unequivocally states that the Lord had done this. This was not the cause of some unusual but natural night sounds that the the, the soldiers mistook for horses and chariots. We've seen on numerous occasions in the Bible that the Lord would fill an army with an irrational fear that caused them to wilt and then run away. But notice something else. The Lord had intentionally deceived the Syrians. Last week, we discussed that Elisha had lied to and deceived some other Syrian soldiers who had come to arrest him. He asked the Lord to blind those men, meaning to dull their perception. Then Elisha told them he wasn't the man they had come for, even though he was. But he knew where they could find him. So then he marched them to Samaria, and upon arrival asked the Lord to restore their lost perception. I said that it bothers some Christians that a great Bible hero and an agent for God would lie to an enemy or that the same might intentionally deceive an enemy. But here we see even the Lord do it. And this is because there is no biblical commandment against lying to or deceiving one's enemy in battle. The New Testament instruction to love your enemies does not extend to giving away military secrets. 
It doesn't extend to divulging battle plans and truthfully answering anything your enemy wants to know so that they can have victory. The four Mitzrim simply could not resist this unguarded bounty that they stumbled upon. Was this stealing? Heavens no. This was spoils of war. However, did the spoils of war belong entirely to them? And the answer to that is no. So they began to feel guilty about their find. And they no doubt figured that when their king discovered that they had delayed in informing him about all this, they would have paid with their lives. So they talked it over, they went back to the city gates and they called out to the gatekeepers. The word started spreading around the city and pretty soon it reached the king's ears. Naturally, he didn't believe that the Aramean army had fled since there would be no reason for him to do it. But why would these four men lie about it? Jehoram's heart was just too hard to even remember that the word of God he had received only 24 hours earlier from Elisha had told him this time was coming. It's now apparent that his wearing of sackcloth was about as deep as his repentance was. He remained a thoroughly wicked and unchanged man. But one of his royal court wisely insisted that the king at least check out the situation. And at this point, any hope at all was better than none. Jehoram, though, seemed more concerned that he might lose some of his still alive and thus valuable horses to the enemy if this turned out to be a ruse and an ambush. But his servants convinced him it doesn't matter. Because if the horses are captured, the remaining ones were going to die of starvation any time now or be slaughtered for food. Well, the horsemen went out. They saw the empty camp. There were footprints, strewed clothing, leading all the way to the Jordan River. One can only imagine the thoughts that went through these Hebrew scouts' minds. Why would Aram just leave so suddenly and abandon everything? after months in siege. I mean, are they maybe just over the horizon ready to attack? But the scouts reported back to the king what they saw. Well, the anxiousness of the people of Samaria to get to some food in the Syrian camp must have been overwhelming. The pushing and the shoving gave way to a stampede as the gates were opened for them to stream out for the first time in months. And the same servant who had scoffed at Elisha's oracle from God found himself trampled to death by the starving residents of Samaria as they rushed out to loot and forage for food. And indeed, there was so much food left by this vast Syrian army that food prices dropped drastically with this abundant supply. The last three verses of chapter 7 recount word for word Elisha's prophecy that there would be plentiful food in only one day and that the unbelieving servant would see it appear he'd never get to partake of it. It's ironic 
that the stampede that killed him was caused by the unexpected presence of the very thing that he denied was even possible. We're going to begin chapter 8 next week.